Welcome to the teaching hour of, of Community Bible Chapel. Uh, Tom Wright is our speaker, and we have two passages to, to read this morning. Um, first one is Psalm 82, 1 to 8. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaking. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. And now, John chapter 10, verses 22 to 39. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews, therefore, gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in, in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you're, you, being a man, make yourself out, out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do not say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming. Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and eluded their grasp. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will be with Tom this morning, that your Holy Spirit will be speaking through him. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be working in us to teach us your word. And Father, may we see the Lord Jesus May we love him more, and may we go out and want to obey and serve serve him. Be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. 
I want to start this morning with a, a bit of historical background that I believe sheds significant light on this passage. Uh, during the time between the completion of the Old Testament and the beginning of the writing of the New Testament, roughly 400 years, the, the region of Palestine was in a whole lot of turmoil, as, as was much of the rest of the world. Uh, this was after the glory days of Alexander the Great, the time that I'm about to address, uh, the glory days of, the, of the, the kingdom of Greece, when many men and nations were kind of jockeying for control over pieces of that, what had been that vast empire. Uh, in the second century BC, a dynasty of kings known as the Seleucids came into power over the region of Palestine. And one particular Seleucid king named Antiochus uh, was not very keen on the notion that there was a ruling hierarchy in Jerusalem at the temple that didn't acknowledge him as the top of the food chain. And so Antiochus set out in 167 B.C. to eliminate the entire Jewish system of worship from his domain. He did some astounding things. According to the extra-biblical apocryphal book known as 1 Maccabees, he declared that anyone who owned a copy of the Torah, the Law of Moses, was to be executed. All copies of the Torah that were found were to be gathered up and burned. He decreed that any family that persisted in the practice of circumcising their, their male children were to be executed. The family was to be executed. And to add, to add insult to grievous injury, he he set up a statue of the Greek god Zeus in the Jerusalem temple and he ordered that pigs be sacrificed on the altar, the sacred altar of burnt offering. It would be impossible to conceive of a, of a greater provocation against the Jews than that which came from Antiochus, who, by the way, saw himself as a, a great god in the pantheon of Greek gods and gave himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus God Manifest. This guy was a mess. At the beginning of this passage, in the first two verses, the Apostle John says that it was the Feast of Dedication. And... Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. You guys actually know about the, something about the Feast of Dedication because it's the feast that is called Hanukkah. That feast came about when after a revolt occurred against Antiochus. This whole thing that Antiochus did, it, it provoked a major revolt in, among the Jews in Judea, and specifically among the family of a high priest named Mattathias. When Mattathias was killed rather early in that process, his son Judas Maccabeus 
became the champion of that revolt. And he succeeded in driving the armies of Antiochus out of the city of Jerusalem and out of the temple. In 165 B.C., Antiochus instituted a great festival that is still observed to this day, the festival we know as Hanukkah. It's also called the Feast of Dedication or the Festival of Lights. That festival was a great remembrance, a celebration of God's deliverance of His own temple back into the hands of His people. It was a celebration of the restoration of the worship of Yahweh at the temple. And so at the beginning of this passage in John 10, we have Jesus walking in the temple at the Feast of Dedication. We have... (laughs) We have Yahweh, Jesus, the light of the world at the Festival of Lights, walking in His temple. And John is careful to point out that he's walking in the, in the column-supported great porch that was named after Solomon, who was the first king in the line of the shepherd king David that led to the great and perfect shepherd king Jesus Christ. This particular Hanukkah was unlike any Hanukkah since. (laughs) Before or since. This is the setting, the historical setting for this passage. A little later in this passage, Jesus is going to quote just a few words from a psalm, Psalm 82, which I asked Paul to read this morning. And I believe that God, through the, through the psalmist Asaph, declared some things in that psalm that are very, very strongly connected to the passage we're looking at this morning. Psalm 82 opens with the statement, God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. That's what this passage is about. As soon as John establishes the setting, Jesus walking in His own temple at the Feast of Dedication, He then immediately tells us what the Jews who were gathered for that festival said to Jesus. They said, How long, Jesus, how long will You keep us in suspense? If You are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, if you and I have been paying attention throughout our study thus far in this gospel, we should be able to anticipate what Jesus' response to that question is going to look like. We've looked at, we've seen this over and over already. How did Jesus respond when people asked him, are you the Christ? Or when they asked him, who are you? Over and over and over in this gospel, he responded by saying, Look at the witness of my Father, and you'll know who I am. And that's just what he does here. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Over and over in this Gospel, Jesus said, in effect, My words, all of them, are from My Father. And My works, all of them, 
are from my father. They match up perfectly with everything that my father said concerning his Messiah, his Christ, everything that he said his Messiah would do and say when he spoke through the prophets in ages past. You ask me if I am the Christ, here's my answer. Who does my father say that I am? Now, if you think Jesus is making this too hard on the Jews, consider how he answered that same essential question when the person asking was John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, after Herod had thrown John the Baptist in prison, John sent some of his disciples to confirm that Jesus was the real deal, the promised Messiah. Listen carefully to how that conversation went. John's disciples asked Jesus in Matthew 11, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. What you hear and what you see. And then quoting in part from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus said, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus told John's friends in effect, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. Report to him my words and my works. Both line up perfectly with the witness of my Father through all the prophets concerning me. That's the same thing he's saying to the Jews here. But actions do indeed speak louder than words. And Jesus puts the priority here in John chapter 10 on his works as that which vindicate his words. That's what he says at the beginning of the passage in verse 25. That's what he says at the end of the passage in verses 37 and 38. Verse 25 that we just read, he said, I told you who I am, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. In 37 and 38, he says, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, in other words, though you do not believe my claims about myself, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So if Jesus' works vindicated all that Jesus claimed about Himself, why did these Pharisees not believe in Him? Well, it, it certainly was not because the Father's witness was not compelling That was not the problem. That, beloved, is never the problem when people reject Jesus. It's never the problem. Jesus said to them, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. How does someone become his sheep? Well, if you go to the part of the chapter before that, verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. To be his sheep, you have to enter through him. He has to be your way of access to God and no other. These guys 
dodged the door and tried to climb over by another way and steal the sheep. Then he tells them how they would have responded, these Jews, how they would have responded if they had been his sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If these Jews had been the sheep of the good shepherd, they would hear his voice, they would be known by him and they would follow him. That's what his sheep do. And if they were his sheep, they would be guaranteed eternal life. Verses 28 and 29 of John chapter 10 present one of the clearest and most powerful statements in the New Testament concerning the eternal security of all who belong to Jesus Christ by faith. His words here about His and His Father's protection of His sheep are exceedingly gracious words considering who He's talking to. Some of these Jews who were gathered at the temple for this feast of dedication had not yet come to a conclusion about the identity of Jesus. In fact, at the end of the previous passage, John said they were still kind of debating this. Some said that Jesus had a demon and was insane. But others said a demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And Jesus had just done that for the first time in the history of the world. He had healed a man blind from birth in chapter 9, the previous chapter. See, some of these Jews were beholding the witness of the Father to the Son through the works that God had given the Son to do. And some of them were about to come to faith in Jesus Christ. In the previous passage in John 10 verse 9, Jesus said, anyone who comes through the door, I'm the door if you come through that door. You, you will, you will be in my pasture. You will be my sheep. And now in verses 27 to 29, Jesus reveals the unassailable security that comes with being a sheep in the flock of the Good Shepherd. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. Friends, the sheep who belong to the Good Shepherd don't have to guess whether they have eternal life or not. If you believe that Jesus is who His Father has revealed Him to be, if you believe that He did what His Father sent Him to do, if you believe the witness of the One who sent Jesus from heaven to earth to save sinners is the One who saved you, you have eternal life. You will never come under God's judgment to determine your eternal security. That doesn't mean you will not be judged. It means you will not come under His judgment to determine your eternal destiny. Why? Because your eternal destiny is already settled. You have already crossed over from death into life forever. Already! If you believe in Jesus Christ. And John 
Chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has already crossed over out of death into eternal life. God wants you to know that, beloved. Here in John 10, He says of His sheep, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you trust in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior, your Savior, who paid the eternal debt for your sins, did you know that you are a gift from God the Father to God the Son? You're a gift from God the Father to God the Son. He says, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one can take them out of His hand. God's not taking that gift back from His Son. He bought you for Himself at the incalculable, precious price of His own Son's poured out blood. Poured out in your place. And you are a gift from God the Father to His beloved Son. He said the same thing back in John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. He said, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I will lose nothing but raise it all up on the last day. And then he clarifies what he's talking about. In verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. I hope you're hearing these promises, beloved. Jesus will never ever take back His gift to His Son. God, will, the Father will never take back that gift from His Son. Jesus will never ever let you be plucked out of His hand. And His Father will ne never let you be plucked out of His hand. You're double covered. No, you're triple covered. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, He says, the Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. The whole Trinity is keeping you in Christ. Do you believe that promise? Do you believe you have that kind of security in Jesus Christ? Some godly believers get a little upset these days when they hear a phrase like once saved, always saved. And I understand why they do. They say talk like that makes Christians complacent and lazy. It cheapens the grace of God. But beloved, isn't that exactly what Jesus is saying right here? Once you have been made my sheep, nobody can touch you forever. You're mine. Now please hear me. I understand and I fully share the concerns of godly men and women who see far too many professing Christians treat the grace of God as a ticket to heaven that demands nothing of them until they get there. 
That is an ungrateful insult to the, to God. It is a, it is a shameful response to the greatest gift ever given to people, to human beings. And it cannot stand. In Romans 6, Paul says, what shall we say? Shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? May it never be. But where does he go after that? (laughs) He says, you have been buried with Christ in the likeness of His death. You have been raised with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. So reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Be who you are, not who you aren't. Beloved, the solution to a stupid, shameful, ungrateful response to the gift of eternal life is not to turn it into something other than a gift. And the solution is certainly not to leave believers who struggle daily against the world, the flesh, and the devil just like you do, chronically wondering whether they're actually headed for heaven or for hell. Jesus didn't do that with His sheep, and we had better not be doing that with His sheep. Many godly preachers consider faith and assurance to be two closely related but different things. John Calvin, on the other hand, considered faith and assurance to be inseparable sides of the same coin. He believed that as goes one, so goes the other. That's what I believe as well. Calvin recognized that the assurance of many believers that they are destined for heaven ebbs and flows at certain points in their Christian life. But he says it's not because faith and assurance are different things. He says it's because faith ebbs and flows depending on whether our eyes are fixed on the right object or are not fixed on the right object. Object. See, our assurance shouldn't waver for the same reason that our faith shouldn't waver because the object of our faith never changes. It does waver. And, and guess what? We sin, but does that mean we're supposed to sin? No. And we are not supposed to walk around as believers wondering whether we will whether we will spend eternity in heaven when our eyes are firmly fixed on the author and perfecter of faith who promises that he never loses any of his sheep instead of focused on us or on our situation our trust in him doesn't waver it'd be like peter getting out of that boat keeping his eyes fixed on Jesus, he would not sink into the water. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's not a tricky statement. It's very straightforward. If you're a child of God, the faith by which you received eternal life is not belief that Jesus saves. It's belief that Jesus saved you. 
And He wants you to know and be assured that He who already saved you from the penalty and power of your sin is going to finish what He started until the day when sin and the curse of sin are in your rearview mirror forever. Beloved, you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the, the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who paid the eternal debt for your sin that you may be righteous in the eyes of God on the basis only of His righteousness and His blood. You who believe in Jesus Christ, hear this from His own mouth. No one, no one, no one can pluck you out of His hand. And beloved, that doesn't mean no one but you. You know what he bases that declaration on? No one is greater than my Father, and I and the Father are one. That's why no one can pluck you out of His hand. No one can pluck you out of His Father's hand. So unless you're greater than God the Father and God the Son, you can't undo what He has done. Here in verse 30, Jesus asserts His absolute authority to guarantee the eternal security of His own sheep by saying, I and the Father are one. That means He's God. Many people today declare that Jesus never claimed to be God. But the Jews who were standing right in front of Him knew exactly what He was claiming. Over and over they knew it. That's why they kept trying to kill Him. And yet the perfectly compelling witness of the Father to the Son was unconvincing to these Jews because they were not of His sheep. So once again, they took up stones to kill Him on the spot like they'd tried to do over and over. And once again, they didn't succeed. Jesus said to them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning Me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The most stunning irony I see in this passage is what the Pharisees said to Jesus right there. You, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They had it fatally, catastrophically backwards. If they had recognized who they were talking to, they would have said, you being God made yourself man to save the miserable likes of us. Instead, they said, you being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them and He said, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Friends, that statement is seen by many as one of the hardest, most inscrutable sayings Jesus uttered during His entire time on this earth during His first coming. That statement has been used by heretical cults and liberal theologians, and I have trouble distinguishing between those two, to defend the notion that Jesus never actually claimed to be Yahweh. But if you actually read the psalm that He quotes, 
I believe his point becomes very clear. When Jesus says to these Jews, has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods, he's quoting from Psalm 82, the psalm that Paul read at the beginning. That psalm is an indictment by God against the rulers of his own congregation of Israel. It is an indictment very much like that that we saw last week in Ezekiel 34 in which God accused the priest, the prophets, and the kings of Israel of being evil shepherds who consumed God's sheep to feed themselves instead of feeding God's sheep. It is an indictment very much like that which Jesus makes right here against the evil shepherds of his own generation in the first part of this chapter, chapter 10 that we looked at last time. In Psalm 82, God says to those wicked rulers of Israel, I said you are gods, God through Asaph says, I said you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. The declaration, you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High, is not, it is not some off-the-wall statement found nowhere else in Scripture. It actually has very solid precedent elsewhere in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 4, when God sent Moses back to Egypt to tell Pharaoh that God told him to let his people go, Moses protested that he was not an eloquent man so God should send somebody else. God said to Moses, in effect, Moses, who made your mouth? But God nonetheless condescended to send Moses' apparently more eloquent brother Aaron with him to be the spokesperson to do the talking when they went to declare God's amazing plan to the enslaved Israelites and then to Pharaoh. Listen to what God told Moses. He said, He, Aaron, shall speak for you to the people, and it shall come about that he shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be as God to him. A little later in Exodus, in chapter 7, verse 1, God said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh. Except the word as isn't actually in the Hebrew. He says, See, Moses, I make you God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. What does that mean? It's not a mystery. It means that God sent Moses to act as God's agent, God's representative, to speak God's words, to do God's works on God's behalf. To stand in the place of God. Aaron was to receive and pass along to Israel and to Pharaoh Moses' words as if they had come directly from God, because they did. (laughs) Pharaoh was to receive the mighty miracles that God performed through Moses as the very works of God, because they were. In his excellent commentary on the Gospel of John, Bob Deffenbaugh points out that in Exodus 22, verse 8, the Hebrew word Elohim, God or God's, is used to refer to the God-appointed priestly judges of Israel who were to render decisions on God's behalf in contentious legal matters. 
So in Psalm 82, when God, through the psalmist Asaph, refers to the evil rulers of Israel as gods, what he's saying to them is, your assignment was to act as my agents, my image bearers, my ambassadors, called and sent to speak my words to my people and to all who do not know me. When you get right down to it, that was God's assignment for all of mankind in Genesis chapter 1. To be His image bearers and agents. To do His work in His creation, His way as His representative. To be as God in the world. John, the same apostle who wrote this gospel, says in his first letter to the churches, as He, Jesus, is, so also are we in the world. But what happens to God's failed agents and image bearers if they do not come to faith in the perfect image bearer? Psalm 82 says, Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. And then he says, Arise, O God. Judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. What had Jesus said about judgment? All judgment in chapter 5. He said, My Father has given all judgment into My hands. And when the psalmist on behalf of God says, Arise, O God, and judge the earth, he's talking to Jesus. He's the God, the second person of the Trinity, who is going to arise and judge the whole earth. He is the one who possesses all the nations and who will rule over them with a rod of iron. By citing this psalm, Jesus is adding a mountain of weight to his condemnation of these men who were accusing him of blasphemy. He said to them, he said, God called the rulers of Israel to whom the word of God came, gods. Now, the rulers to whom the word of God came were calling the word of God who came a blasphemer. By rejecting God's incarnate word, they were rejecting God himself. That's always the case when people reject the Son of God, He said, whoever does not honor Me does not honor the Father who sent Me. They were calling their own judge a blasphemer. If they did not repent and turn in faith to Jesus, they would bear forever the same curse of death that covers every unredeemed human being, whether prince or pauper. And that curse is eternal. Separation from God from the presence of God and from the glory of His power. The last verse of this passage, verse 39, says, Therefore, they were seeking again to seize Him, and He eluded their grasp. As Jesus said earlier in this chapter, no one takes His life from Him. He has to lay it down. And lay it down, He did, to save people like us. This passage speaks of two responses to the same evidence concerning the identity of the person who was walking in the portico of Solomon in the temple of Yahweh on this particular day. One is the response of those who are not his sheep and the other is the response of those who are his sheep. 
Which of those are you? Anyone who would make the claims that Jesus made about Himself is either an evil blasphemer or a deluded lunatic or He is the Lord of glory. God of very God. The real evidence is crystal clear. Never has any courtroom seen an assembly of witnesses like that which preceded and surrounded Jesus Christ. 1,500 years of prophets all saying the same thing about the same incomparable person. Miracles unlike any the world had ever seen. Works that perfectly fulfilled all that the prophets had said about God's promised Messiah. A perfectly sinless life of unwavering submission to God the Father. And finally, the atoning death and glorious resurrection of the suffering servant of God, the perfect Lamb of God, just as His Father had promised through the prophets. What will you do with that evidence? Jesus said to His disciples, who do you say that I am? Every human being will answer that question. This passage, in closing, this passage is far more about Jesus than about us who belong to Jesus. But there's an assignment here for us. Surely more than I will, will be able to say here. But first, we must fearlessly proclaim to every lost soul the same things that God the Father has proclaimed for millennia concerning His Son. We must declare Jesus to be one with the Father. The one who, being God from eternity past, made Himself man in order to save the wretched likes of us. We must point to the works of Jesus that perfectly fulfill both the character of His Father and the prophetic witness of His Father. And as His ambassadors, we must call men to believe in Him. And beloved, we, like Jesus must live lives that vindicate our claim to be speaking for Him and working for Him. Secondly, we need to remind one another as His children that no one can ever pluck us out of the Son's hand or the Father's hand or the Spirit's hand. The birthright of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is to know that you have eternal life already and forever. That's where gratitude comes from. 1 Samuel 12.24 says, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. Hebrews 12.28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Without gratitude, beloved, our service is filthy rags to God. As we encourage one another to listen to Him ever more earnestly, to know Him ever more fully, to follow Him ever more closely, we must never let our eyes linger for more than a moment on ourselves. Grateful service does not proceed from uncertainty. 
and any other kind of service is filthy rags in the eyes of God. Grateful service comes from confident assurance that God the Father has made you a gift to His own beloved Son and that nobody, nobody, nobody can ever pluck you out of His hand. Nobody can take the Father's gift away from Jesus. Dear Father, we confess before You that we honor Your Son even as we honor You because He is one with You. You are in Him and He is in You. You have called us into that incomprehensible love and unity and fellowship that has existed from eternity past between God our Father, God His Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And You have called us into that unity and fellowship in our Savior Jesus Christ. We who believe in Him are His and the sheep of His pasture forever. We know that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life and we will dwell in the house of our God forever. And it's only and entirely by Your amazing grace. In Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Father, make us bold and fearless to proclaim Him to every lost soul. Make us a people purified as His own possession, zealous to do His good deeds in the world until we stand in His beautiful presence. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.